Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning has gone completely virtual. We've taken both our Level 1 and Level 2 courses and loaded them onto an online platform so that you can digest the power of this amazing operating system from the comfort of your home. We combine this recorded video experience with live Zoom labs to bring all the principles and practices of reconditioning to life through applied case study. In turn, you walk away with how to best use this language of common practice to bring the worlds of therapy and performance together in one powerful approach that creates lasting change in your client's performance. This fall, ReconditioningHQ.com is launching a complete experience package that brings all of the video teachings together with a powerful mentorship program and a weekly community touchpoint so you can grow as the reconditioning revolution grows. We are truly excited about the possibilities. We believe that success in any venture begins with the right mindset. We know that the statistics for burnout in human performance are significant and that many of our colleagues face questions every day about personal fulfillment and living their best life. This is why we've started a landmark program for human performance professionals called Empower You. This program is all about crafting your best life, living purposefully, and enjoying the fruits of your impassioned labor. For more information about reconditioning courses or our amazing Empower You program, head over to reconditioninghq.com and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 Canadian off the program of your choice. Understatement alert for sports performance coaches and proactive healthcare professionals, the last six months have been very challenging. We are now seeing the permanent changes in our profession, how our services are delivered, are affected, and we must adapt. Providing safe and effective health and fitness coaching has never been more needed, yet never been more uncertain. Matrix Fitness Canada wants to help you in your journey. Matrix Fitness is a premier brand of fitness equipment designed for organizations, professionals, and exercisers alike. If you are refreshing your facility, they can help. If you are in need of setting up clients with their home gym space, they can help. The Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador Program is designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.Turner at jhtcanada.com. Welcome to our newest Leave Your Mark sponsor, Rep Performance. Rep Performance is a web application founded by NHLers Nick Foligno and his strength and conditioning coach, Callan McGibbon. Understanding the importance of the developmental stages and their impact on long-term athlete development, they launched an online performance for coaches, trainers, or teachers that would instill a foundation of fitness, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks and they are equipped to succeed in sport in life. Visit them at Rep Performance App 
livingstonmarkcom Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the honor of speaking with Gordon Bosworth. Gordon is a practicing physiotherapist from the UK who has over 40 years of experience in a myriad of roles. His early career was spent as part of the Royal Air Force in physical training and later physiotherapy. After several tur- tours of duty, he left the RAF and became the head of rehabilitation at the Police Rehab Centre in Goring on the Thames and at the same time moved into private practice. He worked also as a physiotherapist for the British Bobsleigh and Bob's Skeleton team from 1996 to 2006, including four years as performance director and was a member of the Great Britain teams at the Winter Olympic Games in Nagano, Salt Lake City, and Torino. He was appointed medical lead for the Canadian speed skating team at the Vancouver Olympic as a chief physiotherapist to the United Kingdom Athletics at the London Games. He attended Sochi holding camp in 2014 with Canada and was a member of the Canadian medical team for the Winter Games in South Korea. Gordon has attended numerous world championships in the sports of bobsleigh and bob skeleton, long and short track, speed skating, and athletics. He's also acted as a consultant to several professional football teams, including Liverpool, Bolton, Wigan, Derby County, Queen's Park Rangers, and Sunderland, as well as the Cornish Pirates rugby team. He's currently working with London Irish RFC and acts as a mentor to several medical teams, including Altus and UKA and various medical and SNC professionals. He also lectures uh, to postgraduate medical professionals on performance-related and insidious onset type issues. Above all his accomplishments, Gordon has been married for 31 years and has two daughters and three grandchildren. I'm honored to have him on the show today. Welcome, Gordon. Uh, thank you, Scott. Wow, was that me you were talking about there? <laughs> <laughs> we write all these things down for when we're going to conferences or whatever, and it's just like this litany of stuff. But it does put into perspective that, uh, you, like you said before we got on, you're old and I'm old, so we can talk about what we've experienced through that. But uh, I want to start at the beginning. Like, where do you where are you born? Where do you grow up? And and what's uh, what's childhood like for for Gordon Bosworth? Well, I, I was born uh, in the centre of Leicester uh, in the UK, which is in the Midlands. And um, we, I moved from uh, Leicester to a little village outside of Leicester uh, called Burstall when I was seven. And I was educated um, at um, a grammar school uh, in Burstall and uh, Longslade Grammar School. And, um, and, yeah, I was a mad sporting kid. Um, I was fairly unusual in the sense of it. I used to remember when I was in the junior school uh, at around about uh, seven years of age, um, every good boy in the UK wants to play soccer, as you call it, football, as we call it. Um, and I remember being good enough to play. Sorry, I wasn't quite good enough to play with the better players, but I was better than the players who weren't good enough to play in the bottom field. And so I remember one day thinking, I can't do this. So I went across to the hockey, the, the field hockey people, which was all girls, of course, and with the old English ash sticks. And I said, can I play this, please? And no one really knew what to do. So they said, yeah, okay. Uh, and, I, and that was my introduction to hockey. I just took to it. I mean, I just loved it. And that became my passion um, for, for many years uh, was, was playing hockey. Wow. When you, school, were, yeah. when you were a little boy, what did you dream of being? Well, that's a very, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know. I, I think medicine was something that I always had an interest. I was always fascinated by the human body, and I used to read books and things on it. And I think I always had a fascination with that. Um, but that's a, I really, I'm never sure I dreamt 
I don't, I don't really know, to be honest. I don't think I had a dream as such uh, in that sense. But as I say, the, the human body always interested me, and I always, um, I always thought, you know, maybe I'd do something in sport or maybe I'd do something in medicine. That would be really good fun because uh, all I could think about was sport most of the time, to be fair, um, <laughs> all the time. So I think, I think that was it. But then I realised I wasn't good enough at the sports that would make any money. <laughs> <laughs> so it had to be something a bit more substantial but no that that was that was cool I had you know I had really hard-working parents you know brought up on a you know a, a working class family who who um just went out and and worked to try and provide me and my brother and my sister you know best upbringing they can and like all of us as we all know as we get older we're all we're all fallible and we all do our best, but we tend to get, you know, the human condition is to not always get it right. But, um, yeah, no, I, that, that was really, for me, uh, that was I, it's a really cool question. No, I, I didn't have a, I didn't have this, I'm going to be this, you know, do this and I'm going to achieve the other. Um, but I was always pretty driven. Um, whenever I took anything up, I didn't ever really go after it half-hearted. If I did it, I did it. Mm. um i went after it and um and i always wanted to be the best i could be uh at whatever i did mm. and as i got older i became better at realizing that i won't be as, as good as i think i'd like to be <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> was there a was there a push from mum and dad to get a job or go to school or or you know what was, uh, what was yes there was a push to, yeah there was a push to go to school for sure but i have to say the biggest the big the, the biggest probably um first time i ever really ran up against my parents a little bit was um was that my education i was i was a reasonably bright kid at school and in most of the top grades for most subjects and but when i found hockey for real uh, around about 15 i mean i've been playing since i was seven but at 15 i might i was selected for what was called england schoolboys then playing schoolboy uh, national hockey and and that changed my life and the sad thing with that was that I think my parents understood how much that meant to me, but they were really concerned now that I wasn't going to focus on my academics and they were dead right. So we sort of, <laughs> we had a, we had a bit of a battle there because I suppose for any youngster, when you're that young and you're particularly good at it. And I, I was really good at it at that stage, you know, cause I was quite a unique player because I was brought to, I was Lester, don't you know, but we've got a, a large Asian and a large Indian and Pakistani community. Mm. And they were really good at field hockey. And mm. so I was brought up with those guys. So I could do things with a stick and a ball, which nowadays is normal. But back then was very unusual for a white face to be able to do that. Mm. So I had these skills that no one could, oh my God, what's this guy doing? But I was, it was natural with these guys because that's what they did. Mm. Uh, and of course, when you've got, when you realize that you're probably a bit better than everybody else or something, it's been incredibly powerful aphrodisiac so it makes everything else come second best and i i fell for that i think <laughs> so did did you kind of have a reckoning with that and have to sort of give it up because of something or was it just kind of time time kind of marched along and you finally just moved on to an academic life like what was the terminal driver for not playing hockey anymore well, I continued. That was the thing. So I realized that if I wanted to play hockey and I wasn't going to spend my time educating myself as to the level I wanted to, I did end up um, getting the exams I needed, not quite the results I should have got. Uh, and so decided, then really, I, I remember looking at the military thinking, hang on a minute, this, the, the military were 
would go, wow, you know, I was 18, just, just, just actually before my 18th birthday. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. I looked at this thing called a physical training instructor and he could go, wow, I can go and teach sport, play sport. Wow, this looks fantastic. <laughs> so, so off I went to the, um, to the, to the, to the um, um, recruitment office and said, I want to be a PTI. And the RAF guy said, okay, yeah, well, we'll see. You have to go for a vetting to the school of PT, and they have to decide if they think you've got what it takes. Uh, and this, this is, this is, you'll like this. So I went, okay, no, great, great. So they sent me to St. Athlon then it was in, in Wales. And I went for my vetting, and I came back, and they said, right, you've passed the vetting. Yep, we'll let you join up as a PTI. I went, great. Now, you've got to sign this form. What, what's that form? Well, <laughs> You might have to parachute, but in the case you should have to, um, would you? Because all because PTIs in the Air Force became parachute jump instructors, and we did all the training for. And I thought, nearly eighteen. Yeah, go on. So I signed it. So, so I, I went off. I went off to Scrindeby, which was then the training centre for brand new recruits. And I'm in Swindeby for, I think you're there for, I can't remember how long you were there for, six weeks, I think. And I then have to go and start my PTI training via parachute training school at RAF Price Norton. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm going, oh, my God, I'm going to die. That's it. I'm finished. <laughs> so I you might thinking, have turned who you will have. <laughs> you will have to. So I end up at parachute school. Where we have to do our basic parachuting, and I have to tell you, now that was scary stuff. <laughs> oh my god! Tell me about the first time you did it, was it? Uh... Oh wow! So the first thing we do is balloon jump. So we we it's so funny. So you can imagine we this balloon cage under a big barrage balloon, um, and we're on a we're on a static line shoot. So we take our little strops and we hock them on the centre, and all of us, there's four of us in there at a time with the jump instructor, and you're clinging for dear life to this thing which you're going to jump out of. <laughs> and the balloon goes up 800 bloody feet. Oh, scary or what? I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only just about to turn 18. I'm, I'm not even sure I'd had sex or not then by then. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to be dead. <laughs> so I'm in this balloon and you just have to get to 800 feet and you just have to jump out. There's a technique you know, you get on the entrance that you put your hand over your reserve and you get out and you look back on, on your strops and you, you count four seconds and the chute opens and it breathes and you catch yourself again. Then it opens up and down you go. And because when you jump out of the balloon, you're going straight down, you honestly feel like your whole, oh man. And Oh. <laughs> did I, you ever get used to it or comfortable no, with it? No. no 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 it was never for me for some people they loved it we, we did a, a, a few jumps um out of a balloon and then we jump out of an aircraft so it's a big military aircraft with lots of us and because i'm bosworth i'm bloody first aren't i so i'm first out <laughs> oh god so you just I said, remember you had, to, you had to check the box. You had to do it. Once you were done it, you were done it. Well, we had no choice. If you didn't actually go through your parachute course and pass it, you would not be allowed to start your physical training. Training. Right. So it was a prerequisite. They didn't tell you that, though. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, I finish off with my, um, with my parachute school, and I graduate, which is fine. Then I end up in St. Athen, which was a school of physical training then. It's now at RAF Costard in the, in the, in the Midlands. But... 
And I had six months down there of being absolutely battered to death. Um, physically, they hammer you to death. Um, and then you graduate and off your career goes. And, I, and that's how it all started, really, for me. That was 1976. Wow. And so how do you discover then the physical therapy side of things? You, do you, you kind of decide, do you interact with somebody or some situation and it kind of perks your interest and you go over to that or? Yeah. Well, what happened was there was a, okay. So within the military, the, the physical training branch, there are, there are specialties. So you can become a parachute instructor. You can become an outdoor activities instructor, a mountain mountaineer, and you become what was called then a remedial gymnast, which was a sort of halfway house between um, a rehab specialist and a physio. It wasn't quite a physio, but it was much more than whatever else mm-hmm. at the time. Um, and so I thought, oh, I've always been interested in the body. I've always been interested in doing that. This is a real opportunity. So I, I applied for that, and I, I, I got onto the course, which is um, uh, same thing. It's, it's three, two years of academic and a year of probation. Um, and so I did that course uh, for two years, sorry, at the, hosp- at the university hospital in, in London. And um, on graduation, what they did was when I, I passed, so I became a remedial gymnast. It's just a name we use in the military. Was, there was people in the civilian life do it. And so what you're doing is you may not be doing some of the hands-on individual work, but you're doing all the rehabilitation hmm. uh, in the hospital, out of the hospital. But then what happened was, uh, in, so I graduated, when did I do that? I graduated in 83. Mm. And then what happened was the, um, the Society for Chartered, Chartered Physiotherapists and the remedial gymnasts decided they were all but two very similar bodies. And it didn't make sense to have two bodies doing the same type of thing. Hmm. So they two became one of the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy. And then, then they offered all the remedial gymnasts an opportunity to do one more year's training to become fully-fledged physios. Gotcha. Now, you didn't have to do it, but you would have had caveats against your registration had you not done it. Hmm. So although you would have been a chartered physio, you would have been not eligible to do certain things. Right. And I thought, well, I'm not having that. So I went to the RAF School of <laughs> Physiotherapy uh, and finished and did, did the final part of the, of the, what would have been then a degree, so of course. So I graduated then as a physio proper out the end of that side of things. So I had both sort of sides, really. And that's really how I, how I got going. Mm. And, I, um, I noticed in the I was talk, talking I think before we went on that I had sort of met you so to speak virtually through an interview you did with uh, Jazz Randawa with uh, Altus and you were talking in there about the fact that you'd done a lot of work with well being in the RAF and doing physical therapy you had a lot of uh, veterans coming back from sure. um, you know Falklands or what have you and there's gunshots sure. and you know sure. Talk a little bit about that as a younger person when you're sort of cutting your teeth. You're cutting your teeth with injuries that are really traumatic. Like that, this right. is beyond the scope of, of sports injury. This is life for injury, sure. things like oh, that. For sure. So how does that contribute to, A, your, your perspective, and B, sort of, um, you know, your, your, call it compassion, empathy factor, all those kinds of things that you, you need to learn to be and have as a, as a good therapist. No, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. It was, um, it was very interesting. I was at Headley Court in Chesington. There are two rehab centres. Uh, Headley Court looks after senior NCOs and officers, and Chesington looked after corporals and below, so the main troops. 
And I really enjoyed the Chesington. Uh, it closed now, but I really enjoyed Chesington because we're working with soldiers. Yeah, and it was very interesting. You're, you have to adapt very quickly and understand the environment that these, these guys have been in and what they've been through. And they've been blown up in Ireland at the time because there's a lot going on in Ireland, as you know, back then. Uh, and then the Falklands War. And then uh, that, was, that was pretty huge. And um, yeah, so so you 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 as a as a therapist, you have to think about what you know. How does that what's impacting on them mentally, which is huge, and then physically, what you can do, and you have to try to, um, I suppose, um, try to dissociate yourself with the trauma if you can, and think about what is what can I do? What does this person need from me right now? What can I actually do? Not what I would love to be able to do, but what can I gen- actually do to help this person? Mm. You And you spend a bit of time, and I've bothered this through my whole life, actually. I'm a massive fan on getting to know my patients. It's a relationship. There are lines drawn in the sand. It's a relationship. And if you're going to treat somebody, you're treating a person, not an injury or not an accident. Mm. You're treating the person. I've never lost sight of that. It's a person. person, It's the whole thing. And so that's where I would start with these guys. And, and, you know, um, and it was, it was crazy. I mean, we, we would, half the time, if I'm honest, you're just making things up. You're just trying really hard to, to do things because there's nothing in the books that tells you what to do with it. There's no training for it. So you just have to work it through and, and look at it from that way. So, you know, I remember a quick story. I remember one guy who was amazing. Um, he'd been out in Ireland and uh, he, they'd been, uh, they'd been ambushed and in the morning and they were fine and been ambushed again in the afternoon. And he, he got what's called the Queen's Gallantry Medal. Now, that medal is one below uh, the top, you know, the VC, Victoria Cross. Anyway, and I asked him what he'd done because he'd come in and his leg, knees were shot away. And they'd been, they'd been, in the afternoon, they'd been ambushed again and they came under fire. And he pulled all six of his troop to safety. He went back in the line of fire and he rescued every single one of them from the vehicle. Mm. And he'd been hit and he just kept going. And I was like, I feel now, you know, wells of emotionally inside you. And I was thinking, oh my God, I couldn't have done that. He said, yes, you could. And mm. so would every one of the guys in that troop would have done the same because that's the military. That's, I think you know that from colleagues in Canada and America. That's the bond and the strength you have of unity. Mm. And they really are a proper buddy-buddy. You may not like everybody, but you'll never leave them. You'll never, ever leave them. And and it was massively empowering to me listening to him talk, and it made me even more determined to learn more so I could help this guy mm. and, and help others like him. So it was those types of things that spur you on. And we would have lots of conversations as a team because we were all, we were all in situations we'd never been before. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the Headley Court in Chesney had been around a long time. It had seen it in the past, but we hadn't seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was fascinating. Th- things like that I remember because they were, they were, they were life-changing times, you know, and, and well, the Falklands. Talk about that. How did, how did you grow? Can you describe a growth piece for you during that period of time that, that you you matured or grew grew from from that experience in some way shape or form when you look back now um 
I would, I think I grew up pretty quickly. I think mm -hmm. I, I think I grew up very rapidly. I realized that this was real. This wasn't some textbook. It wasn't something happening in the operating theater. Mm. This was real life. And these guys needed my help and they were depending on me to do a good job and to, and to try and give them back some semblance of a life again and get them ambulant. And so I think I did grow up really quickly, but it also made me determined to learn and be, and to be as, as good as I could be. And, and I, and I, you know, I researched a lot and I asked a lot of questions and I remember it focused me a lot and focused where I wanted to go and not then about the sporting side at that point, much more to do with being a, trying to be a really good therapist, you know, mm -hmm. trying to be effective, you know, don't waste time with nice little fancy rubbish. What was going to be effective? How could I, how was I going to make a difference for these guys? You know, that was, that was my main motivator. So I think I just grew up real fast and, and I needed to, because I was, I was a bit of a, immature kid at the time really um <laughs> and it does and, and i and i think the other thing that i learned was how lucky i was mm. yeah. i'm you know whenever bad i thought my life might be at that time it was nothing compared to these guys and that was nothing more pushed that home even more was in 82 after the falklands when i joined the falklands when i was at the queen Elizabeth hospital in woolwich and we were dealing with the burns and amputees 16 17 18 17, 18-year-old kids with arms and legs missing, with burns like you've never seen before. Mm. And that, that was, um, that stays with you forever. That sort of scars you a little bit because that could have been me. Mm -hmm. That could have been, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was really difficult. And these kids had no, you know, their lives, what we didn't have. It was, it was really, that was really hard. Mm. And I found that emotionally incredibly difficult. And maybe now I look back, maybe that's helped to strengthen me and maybe helped to shape me. But at the time, I just remember just, yeah, finding it real difficult. Everyone did. I mean, nobody knew what to do or say. Nobody did. Mm. The doctors were doing amazing jobs with the amputations and with the burns. But even then, no one really knew what we were going to do with these kids' lives. The South Atlantic Fund was running out. What were we going to do? Mm. Um, you know, we're not always the uh, too political. We're not always the best over here at taking care of our veterans. We don't have a similar process that they do, particularly in America. I'm not. I'm sure Canada's the same. Um, we've got better and better at it, but we don't still don't do enough for people who have gone and sacrificed like these people have. Mm. You know, uh, you could you can never thank the veterans of whatever country enough for the work they do because it's not a nice thing. But every now and again, it has to be done, and people have to go and do it. Unfortunately, and uh, and I do, you know, I do feel very strongly that we need to show that support. You know, eleventh of the eleventh Veterans Days, uh, Poppy Appeal Days. You know, things that, that that matter, remembrance. It matters, and for me, and I'm, and we've got to keep it going for the kids because they have a life now that, that wouldn't be the same had people not gone and done what they did. Mm -hmm. So I tried to, I tried always to to show that respect and to with these people. Mm. But don't get me wrong; I don't know how effective I was. I I think my effort, my energy and effort were massively effective. I think my skills were not overly effective. If I'm honest. <laughs> what what precipitated the change for you? Did you get um, 
despondent from that kind of trauma and stuff and decided to move into no. the police or you just it was just a shift and a transition for you no no what happened was basically was that my, my i i um i was commissioned so i became an officer um in the back end of the 80s um and and i and i found that that was great for me i think i i found i found that i was as I developed and matured, I was getting frustrated at hitting barriers and roadblocks. Because in the military, you've got to remember, right? Right or wrong doesn't count. If I hold more rank than you, I'm right and you're wrong. And I was finding that more, as I, be, as I matured mentally and academically, I found that more and more difficult, particularly in a medical-based profession where it's all about questioning. Mm. It's all about reasoning. Well, there's no, that doesn't occur in the military. You just do it. So... I was advised to take a commission. Unfortunately, I was able to, I passed everything and I threw the boards and I was commissioned. And now that, that helped me a lot. And, and I accepted that you're an officer first and a specialist second. The difficulty for me was, though, I got to the point in the, after the, after the Kuwait um, war, it got to the point where I was not, it was clear that my career was doing very well, but I wasn't going to go back into medicine. So it was clear that I was going to be in and out of it. Mm. And I had to make a decision as to whether or not my life was going to be about moving up the ranks, the slippery pole of getting promoted and sitting in an office basically for the rest of my career. And I may have, got a, I may have made a fairly good rank and I may have got a lot of money and a pension, but I would have done Mm. I just sat in an office. Mm. And, and I remember thinking to myself, the back end of 1991, I thought, nah, it's not for me. And so I resigned my commission and, and I, I was out of the airport in the April of the next year. Um, and I love the RAF and I will, I will always, and I would never do it differently if I did it again. But then I left the Air Force and I, I had a quick foray into private practice and I made a bit of a pig's ear of that, got involved with the wrong people. And then this opportunity to head up the rehab centre in Goring on Thames for the police came up. Of course, with my background, although I was a tad rusty, it was ideal. So they took me on, and and that was a fabulous job. And I did three years there, and I would have stayed forever. If I'd have been older, like now, going in there would be great. Mm. But at, at, in your early 30s, it was it was brilliant, but very limiting because we didn't see people past ten days. So I was lose I was de-skilling a lot. So and I thought, well, I'm too young to de-skill because I'm not treating anybody past ten days. So I'm not planning middle, long-term programming. I'm just doing interventions early on. So my assessment skills went through the roof, but I couldn't plan beyond ten days. <laughs> uh, so I was like, okay. So I decided that, and at the same time, I was moving into sport, and I wanted to desperately move into sport. I was coaching a lot, uh, field hockey, and um, and I decided I need to move into sport. And it was about that, so about around 95, 96, uh, I met Stu. Mm. Um, and um, I'd managed to batter down enough doors at the Olympic Association to finally get an opportunity to work with a team on probation. And I took it. And it was no money, and it was crazy. And my wife was like, "What are you doing?" But I knew I had to do it. It was, it was something in me. So I I started working with with Bob Sade, Olympic, and got into the Olympic movement. And and that's when I knew that I I couldn't do both. So I had to leave the rehab centre because I I need to push my private to get into private practice. I need to get into sport. I can't do everything. Um, so I, I found three years. I loved it, but I came away from there. I was in, into then the, the sporting side of things. And I, 
managed to my I got to my first Olympic Games in 1998 with um, Great Britain, and, um, and that was looking after bobsleigh and skeleton. Uh, skeleton wasn't in that one, but bobsleigh, uh, um, aerials, and uh, mogul skiing. Mm which was really cool. And that was my very first sort of in, and that was me then. Once I got a taste of it, I thought, whoa, this is great. I've got to do this. So before we go down the, um, the path of understanding your sports career, which obviously there's lots of uh, right and left turns in, <clears throat> you made me this woman 31 or more than 31 years ago, I'm probably sure. And you guys get married. So she marries the, the um, military officer, I assume. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Well, just before I was the officer, I was. I was. I wasn't quite commissioned when I married her. Oh okay. no, that's true. No, I was. I lie. I was. I met her when I wasn't commissioned, but I. I was with her when we were commissioned. Yeah. So how do you guys meet? And uh, I have ex- extenuating questions from there, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a great. This is a lovely story in the sense of that I was very fortunate. So uh, part of my role, I didn't say I did two tours in our, in Germany, and while I was in Germany. Um, I was made to become a skiing instructor, which I took to like duck to water. So I spent, I became chief instructor to the RF German scheme for a few years, which put me down in Germany, in Oberammergau, which, uh, Partenkirchen, which is on the Austrian border and in, in Bavaria. And I absolutely loved it. And so you so, just learned skiing from scratch and became an instructor. Is that, I learned from scratch. I just wow. took to it and I worked my at butt off. Um, and I, I just, you know, do you know, some things in life, I'm sure the same as you've met people. I was very fortunate. It made sense to me. So leaning away from the slope and down it made sense to me. To most people, you say, what? I've got to lean down and away from the slope? Get lost. <laughs> but, but for me, it just, I took to it and I worked so hard. And every minute I could ski and get teaching i would go after the german ski instructors who were brilliant i'd i'd spend time with them i'd be watching others and i just worked really really hard uh, over two tours so i'd done three years out there so it was my second tour when i did the chief instructor part and um so i'd i'd ski for a few years then and um and like everything like i said i think that i do i can't not try and be the best i can accept i'm not going to be the very best but i'm not it's not i'm not one of these guys that says oh that i'll just that's fun that's enough i'm not good at that i've got to go no i've got to be able to do that and i watch someone do i go i've got to do that i want to be able to do that so off i go almost kill myself until i could do it so <laughs> So how's, how do you meet the wife? That's where we started. So, so what I was going to say was I was out skiing, and I remember it was in February, and all what we do with the courses come down each week, and they move over the weekend. And they ski all day, and they drink all night, amongst other things. <laughs> and, so, and so I got to February, and I was, my liver was about to pack in. And so I asked if I could go back to my unit for a rest <laughs> and I, I arrived I arrived back at my boss said okay I arrived back in my unit and I'd driven from Bavaria which was about 10 hours to my unit in Gutterslow at the time near Hanover uh, unfortunately one thing I should say is over this period I, I've learned to speak fluent German which was in which was important because um, I was living in their country so it's important for me to to learn the language and so when I got back and went into the mess I, I remember 
thinking I'll just I'll just chill out for a while before I get try and get to bed. And I saw these two girls sitting down, and I saw a whole bunch of guys around them. And everyone has said, said the people said, "Blimey, didn't expect to see you back here." I said, "Well, no, I said, I've just come back to to have a breather and whatever." And they the guy said to me, "Oh, look, we have got a lot of new guys in town. Would you are you free tomorrow night to take us around town and introduce people to the town and the people because I spoke the language?" And I said. Yeah, sure, I've got nothing else on. And I said, and I don't know why I said to these two girls, why don't you join us? And they looked at me and said, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. I went, oh, okay, fine. And then the next day, I got a phone call from the older one of the two that said, no, Kim's my wife's name. said, uh, no, I think Kim would like to join you, you guys. And I said, oh, that's great. So Kim came out and joined. I would not even really spoken to her. And as that, we went out that next evening. And basically, by the end of the evening, these guys were all in the way. And we just talked and talked and talked. And I think when they say first sight, I think I knew straight away, you know, to be fair. And um, she, I saw her the next night and then she went back to the UK. Um, mm. and, and that was, that's how it started. That's how I met her. Wow, that's awesome. So she, mm. she um, falls in love with a guy in the military who's got a steady job and you're working and then you decide to leave this. And and go into the police thing, and then things get a little bit, you know, whiffle and waffle. And now you're going to go into sport, and and probably know not know what the hell you're earning or where you're going. So how does that all go down with, uh, oh, with the wife me. at that point? Oh, <laughs> you should speak to her about that. Oh my god. Um, the only saving grace was that she was brought up in a military family. Her father was um, Air Force for, for 37 years, so she's brought up in a family. So she, she's an amazing woman. Um, you know, uh, I think she pretty much knew most of what she was getting into um, when she married me. Um, she's always been super supportive of everything I've done, and at the time, and then if she's not happy, I get to know later, but um, it was difficult, to be fair. I mean, and I made some mistakes when I came out of the Air Force, um, and we, we, I don't want to go into sob story, but we lost absolutely everything. So I lost, we lost the business that we bought into. I lost our house. I didn't have a job. I mean, it's just coming out because I got involved with the wrong people. And that was a very sober time for me, too, uh, as a learning curve, because I'd not, I'd not really felt anything. Mm. Everything I'd done, I'd succeed, been successful at, you know, one to one degree or another, depending who's measuring it. And now I completely failed. I mean, like, done. And she was amazing. She just took everything on. We had two young girls. She took everything on her shoulders, and she was so amazing. And I remember one day she said to me, darling, you're, you're going to have to go out and find a job. You're going to have to do something now. It's it's time. We, 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 we need you. We need you to get out there. And that's when things like the police thing came up and then things moved on. So we've been through pretty much a, a tough time at that point. And, and so she was cool. Uh, and yeah, I, I was, I fell on my feet. I, I picked up a, a contract called fund holding where, I mean, I was brazen as hell. I went down to, um, to the South of London and there was a contract available there to do. And I picked this contract and I had no idea how I was going to deal with it. But you know, you go in and you, you project and you present and they love the presentation and they said, we're going to stay with the NHS. So great, great presentation. Oh, that's a shame. Two weeks later, they ran me and said, you know what, we've changed our mind. I want to go with you. Mm-hmm. And now I've got to handle this contract. There's 12 doctors and all these thousands of patients. And I don't know how I'm going to do it. 
But I did it, and I worked it through, and it saved my life because financially it, it worked well. Mm. And then I got then I got involved with uh, with the Bob Say, set up my own practice, although it was never really there, and things started to work. Um, <clears throat> so I think what, the biggest. How did losing everything, in essence, serve you uh, as you look back now? Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to go through it again. I was, it's a black hole I was in. I, I, it served me in many ways. Let me tell you one thing that's for sure. I, for the first time in my life, understood what it was like to be able to look at a tunnel and see no light. Mm. I, for the first time in my life, understood why people could take their own lives. I never contemplated it, but I understood it. Mm. And it was a massive salutary learning curve. When I hear people like, you know, us military guys, pull yourself together, come on, get a grip. Well, I now understand when you're at the lowest possible ebb in your life, that's not an easy thing to do. You can't see it. And I couldn't see it. So I think, I think it was incredibly sobering and, and taught me a lot. Um, and I think it helped me massively to be a little bit more empathetic sometimes with people and uh, or sympathetic as well. With, uh, as well. And yeah, and just realized that never leave myself that open ever again. I lost, I wouldn't trust people again. I've got to tell you this because it's very important, I think, for, for, for how I felt at the time. When you're in the military, you've got to remember that trust is a given. Mm. Honor, integrity, these are a given qualities, you know. And I said, people said to me, what was the difference from being in the military and being outside of the military? And I said, well, the best analogy I can give, because it was very raw at the time, was in the military, if I was in the gutter, my worst enemy would have picked me up and made sure I got home. Mm. But outside, they'd have kicked me in the head and stolen my wallet. Mm. That was how I looked at it. And, and that stuck with me too. And that's how I felt because I, I was raw at the time. That's possibly a bit harsh to the civilian world. But it's like all things. You learn the rules of the game. And I didn't know the rules of the jungle outside of the military. Mm. And, I had, and I got a very rapid wake-up call. Mm. So, you know, what happened to me happens to lots of people. And so I then learned the rules. I learned to protect myself. I, uh, I didn't make, I've made mistakes, of course, but I didn't make anything like that mistake again. Hmm. Um, I didn't take anyone at their word or in business or trust them. I, I sussed it out and I made sure that was right cool. because it was tough, man. Yeah, I understand for sure. I hope that answers your question because it was yeah, painful, I mean, yeah. real painful, you know, and, uh, and I'm better with people now when I see people who are, I can see are struggling. I, I, I have a different way of dealing with that now. I can get it. Mm. And it doesn't mean I feed it, but I can get it. Mm. And I would never have got there without that experience. There's not a chance. Mm. So why, uh, why do you end up in bobsleigh? Because um, it's kind was- of a, like, with all the sports in the UK, it's not the one I would sort of pick out of no. the air and go, hey, that's no. what I would expect to get into if I was into sports. Uh, so how does that happen? Well, well, that's because I was so de- – remember I've told you about me knocking down doors and now I am about doing something? I was going to make it into the Olympic movement one way or another. <laughs> and I used to – <laughs> I used to, I used to batter down poor old Richard Budget. So Dr. Richard Budget was Budget was the chief medical officer for the uh, British Olympic Association, and they were at a hospital called Northwick Park in London. And I'd be calling him on a regular basis, 
And I would be knocking down his door and saying, come on, come on, have you anything going? Have you got anything going? And I was working I was working in the evenings to get experience for free in football and rugby, anything. I would do anything for free to build a portfolio, no matter what it took, and I would be there. And he happened to be one of the doctors for the bobstay as well as everything else. And it, it, bobstay came by accident. A vacancy came up. It could have been tiddlywinks. It could have been any sport. It was just that it happened. That's where a vacancy came up. And he said, right, the physio can't make the first half of the season – do you want to do it? Yep, I'll do it. I hadn't even asked my wife. I hadn't even thought about my business. I hadn't thought about I just said, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> and then I had to sell it. So I'm going away for two months, darling, but I'll be back at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, really? <laughs> do I have a say in this? Of course I'm going. <laughs> so off I trotted. And um, and started working with them, and, and that's really how it started. It could have been any sport. It wasn't a desire for Bob say, but I wouldn't have met some of the people that have then shaped my life and become lifelong friends, like Stu McMillan, and then days later Dan Path, and, and and then if I hadn't have met them, I wouldn't have met Kelly, and I wouldn't have met John Berardi. I wouldn't have met all these amazing people mm. that I've met in a, in a Canada and America. I mean, one of my one of my good friends is Matt Jordan, and Matt and I became very good close friends when I was out there. And I wouldn't have had that opportunity without that. So it didn't matter that it was that sport. It opened the doors mm. to things that I would never have dreamt of doing, um, which was really quite amazing. So that's really how I got into bobstone. Poor Richard Budget. And I remember I'm in Calgary, um, and we just had the last World Cup before Christmas in Calgary. And I was that was me done. My bit was finished. And the physio was coming back. Uh, for the next half of the season and I'm sitting having breakfast and that's where I got into this steak and eggs for breakfast oh my god <laughs> thank you very much Canada and um <laughs> and I was sat there and, and one of the couple of the directors of the sport came across to talk to me and they said look the athletes have had a meeting and they want to keep you they want you to stay on and I went oh my god till when I said well till the end of the season I thought, oh, sugar lumps. <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> I mean, I've, I've got to earn some money. I've got to, my wife need, we've got to, oh, my word. But you can imagine what I said, can't you? <laughs> can I think about it? I said, they said, yeah, you've got a couple of hours. <laughs> and so I said, okay. So I said, yes, of course. And then I tried to work out the problems and, and whatever. And I have no idea now. I don't remember how my wife took it. Um, I would imagine I should have anything else. I, I, I think the fact that I don't remember it being a massive issue was because she probably just, she probably knew. To be fair, I have to say, my wife pretty much knows what I'm going to do before even I do. <laughs> so, so well, that's um, the, perfect, the perfect partnership uh, for, yeah. so to speak. So do that's you, how it happened. Yeah. Do you look back with, um, you know, ha- having, two gir- little girls and them growing up and being away a lot. How do, how was that a challenge challenge for oh, you? Man, and, huge, and, huge, and huge. How did that affect you uh, while you were, you know, being a dad at the same time? Big time. I, I think if I'm honest, if I'm completely honest, I probably was in such 
um, a selfish mindset about my career and pressing forward, probably kidding myself a bit that I was doing it for my family, which I was. Of course I was. But I don't know that I really understood mm. what I was missing until I had grandchildren. And believe me, I really get it now <laughs> and have done since for the last eight to ten years. And I, and I mean that sincerely, and I can't change it. And when my wife would say, look, I know you're going away, and I know it's important, but you're missing out on this. It only comes around once with your own children, and that is so true. And I, I try not to regret anything because I think when you make a decision, you make that conscious decision, and you have to live with that decision. So I have to live with the fact that I wasn't there in the early years for my children. Uh, and I've not tried to compensate for it. I've just tried to be the best dad I can be when I was around. Mm. And when I was around more, the best dad. I didn't try to overcompensate. And I don't, and I hope this doesn't sound callous, I don't regret it because mm. I, I made the decision at the time. And I, I have to take responsibility for that decision. Otherwise, if I regretted it, why the hell did I do it in the first place? Mm. Yeah, Does sure. that make a bit of sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, and I live with, the. I have to live with the consequence of that decision like, all of us do in our lives. Mm. There are always consequences with all decisions we take. And if you're not prepared to live with the consequences, you can't, then don't do it. Well, and I think sometimes, you know, um, you, you would know better than I, cause your girls are grown up now and you've got grandchildren. But uh, I think sometimes we also um, overweight that responsibility. And when we end up having conversations with our girls grown up, uh, what we perceived as being sort of, um, not being there maybe wasn't as as bad as we thought it was, and they and they actually, you know, look back fondly on the times that they were with you or what have you. And so I'm I'm curious what the conversation was like uh, with uh, what what has been the conversations with your your daughters now that they're growing up and they look you guys look back on life. Uh, it's I mean I I am very fortunate I have a I have a really good relationship with my girls and. There's conversations that they'll have with their mother and not with me, and there's conversations with me. But I, I have a re really strong relationship with my girls, and and you know, I I don't feel from them any. Um, they don't. They've never ever ever said to me, "Oh, Dad, why were you away all the time? Why are you away so much?" They've never said that. Um, and when they when when I did get back and they were a little older. I actually found that my life experiences helped me a lot with the girls. So, uh, for instance, you know, um, when they were at that age where they wanted to go out to parties and they wanted to do stuff, and my wife was pulling her hair out, and I was in remarkably calm. I'm amazed at myself how calm I was with it. And I would just negotiate with them about things. And, you know, I would – and I found myself being the type of father I didn't know that I could be if that – makes any sense i always said you're not gonna you're not gonna i'm not gonna have boys and da, 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 but i was remarkably calm and my wife couldn't believe it either because she was normally the calmer one and i was normally going getting excited mm. but it was the other way around and uh, and whatever and I, and I and i and i i have to you know i have to shout out to my wife because you know, she had to be mother and father and she had to deal with everything a lot of time on her own and she has done the most incredible job at bringing up those girls because she pretty much did it single-handedly mm. and um and she did an amazing job i have two amazing daughters and i have lovely grandchildren and my wife is you know i mean you know i just managed to punch above my weight and she stood by me through everything and anything 
even when I, even my stupidity, you know, when I make stupid mistakes or when I take on things I shouldn't take on, you know, and um, she tells me I have, we have palm reading sessions every now and again. <laughs> Our sponsor, Rep Performance, is a web application launched by co-founders Nick Foligno and Callan McGibbon. Their platform is designed for teachers and youth sport coaches with pre-designed testing templates and AI-driven workouts geared to individual needs. They aim to provide every coach the ability to develop fitness for life in the athletes of tomorrow, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks, and they are equipped to succeed in sport and life visit them at repperformanceapp.com today our sponsor matrix fitness produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike with equipment that focuses on building speed power and explosive performance in most efficient manner matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations worldwide covid has forced us all to rethink how we are offering our services. With that in mind, Matrix Fitness Canada has created an ambassador program designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.turner at jhtcanada.com. So I'm going to use, I'm going to use that moment actually to segue to this thing I do with my podcast. I discovered a book a number of years ago called the day you were born. It was written by a woman named Linda Joyce, uh, who's from New York city and she's an astrologer and numerologist. And I found my purpose in it. It was really quite powerful. So I'll read yours, and you can see how it bounces on you. You're an Aries 6, born March 24th. So your purpose is to accept yourself and learn how to control your desires and your impulsive behavior through self-discipline and good discrimination. Sexy is the only way to describe the Aries 6. These people have charisma with lots of lots to spare. Actor Billy D. Williams personifies the sexy image of the Aries 6, quoted as saying, nothing else in the world competes with making love. It's rumored he even was better in bed than his fans assume. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Great. Gifted with natural charm, this, ener- this energy has a tendency towards excess and obsession. They're ruled by desire and the love of beautiful things. What they need is experience, discipline, and failure or two to make them strong. Venus adds harmony and easy access to difficult places. The Aries 6 ability to bond gets them through doors closed to others. It did for Harold Washington, the first African-American mayor of Chicago, Houdini, March 24th. And, oh, you have Houdini as you're like famous magician secured his fame with his ability to escape impossible restrictions. Didn't matter if he was hanging upside down in a straitjacket, he got out quickly. It's nice to know you can run away, but why waste such magical energy fleeing when you have the power to wrap someone wonderful around your little finger? Remember, choosing is the challenge. Well, we know we know what now why that wife stayed with you. You're sexy. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll have to ask you that. That's actually really pretty. That's pretty accurate. Isn't it? That's awesome, yeah. It really is. I mean, that's pretty much, well, I don't know. I Some of it I can't say for myself, but that would. I like the fact would, when it said you, you needed a, a big big failure or two to recognize where you, so maybe that was mm. the ignition switch you needed for your career. It's mm. kind of cool. Mm. 
So uh, you you what do you fall in love with bobsleigh skeleton? Is it a sport you you come to um, to, to love or? Yeah, I wouldn't say I fell in love with it. I really enjoyed it, and I still work with them now. That's why I was in Pyeongchang, and I I look after. Um, she's now moved to America, but I looked after Kaylee Humphreys for. Mm pretty much since the start of her career. And I've looked after her ever since. That Again, that's one of the missions Stu and I did for a few years, is we both looked after a number of athletes, including Kaylee. And um, and so, yeah, I, I do. I do have an affinity for it. I do like it. Um, mm. But I spend most of my time in track and field, if I'm honest. That's where I... And, and football. Football, rugby, track and field, those are the three things I spend most of my time doing now. I still see a few of the athletes. And if Kaylee said, and I've always said to Kaylee, while she's competing, I would always support her. So mm. it means that I'm going to have to prepare myself maybe to <laughs> go out to another event. But uh, I, and, and I, yeah, so um, I made that promise. And I am, I am a man, if I'm, I, I try, I do keep my word. If I say I'll do it, then I'll do it. Because, if you're not going to do it, just say you're not going to do it. Right. So Even what, though it's hard to say no. <laughs> especially when you're sexy. Uh, <laughs> Stuart is going to take the wee-wee thing off when you realize that. I you? can't wait till he listens to this. <laughs> yeah. um, so what do, you, what do you fall in love with in your work then? What is, what is it that um, still keeps you going today that you, that you f- really enjoy about what you do? Uh, I just, I, I get such a buzz out of seeing talented people. If I look at that side of what I do in the clinic, I love working with talented people. I love working with people who can achieve things way beyond what I could achieve. Mm. And I love being part of their journey and knowing that I've done a little bit along the way to help them. I get a real buzz. And when I, you know, when I see them succeed i'm overjoyed i have to tell you it's an amazing feeling at watching and helping people to succeed and um and that gives me a big buzz and my patients too when they you know when people come and shadow me and watch me do my, what i do because i don't work like anybody else does mm. um people walk out they walk out differently than when they walk in and mm. to me that's the gift i've got to give them that's the gift i want to pass to them if you come in with one problem you don't you don't leave with five or six more hopefully but you feel like the experience has been has made you better in some way or shape or form whether that's a bit of physical hopefully and something mentally but and i don't give false hope but that's what i that's what gives me the passion is to work out what's going on understand why it's happening and then make the changes that make a significant change to them Mm-hmm. You know, I had a guy in today for the first time. He's never been before. He's been around the house with problems. He's just sent me an email right now as we're speaking, just over the moon mm-hmm. that he finally, you know, he, I won't tell you who he is, obviously, but he, he, I just wanted to reiterate my gratitude for your support today. It was a much needed piece of positivity and a great mental motivator as well as being very physically beneficial. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to our next meeting. Mm-hmm. You know, now, when you get things come back in, I only saw him today, that's, that's, that's why I'm here. Mm. I believe that's why I'm here, why at nearly 62, I'm still as enthusiastic now as I was then. The reason I try and do what I do, the reason I try and drive myself to get better all the time is to be able to help these youngsters who are the future. Mm. As, you're growing, as you're growing and you're developing as a practitioner, um, and we all go through this. I'm just curious, was there a moment, a time, a place where, you know, you started to notice that 
these things had all started to come together. And now you were re- the synergy of your knowledge and experience was now you were getting those kinds of results. Like it wasn't, you know, it was easier in a sense, but at the same time more rewarding. And you just felt empowered by the experience of your years of work and craft. Did that ever hit, did that hit you at some point? In yeah. Your yeah. I, I, I can, I can remember the day that my, the light went on in my head. Finally, mm. I'd been qualified 10 or 12 years and I was, I thought I was pretty smart and I'd read a lot and I was trying hard, and people were getting a bit better, but they weren't getting right, and I was getting very frustrated. And then I met the person who, was, who changed my life, and that was a chap called Professor Dr. Vladimir Yanda, mm. the Czech Republic. Um, I met Vladimir on a, Vlad on a course in London over a weekend, and I was mesmerized. And everything he said just resonated with me. And the course was about myofascial pain syndrome, but it wasn't really that. It was the way he thought and how he looked. And I just went, oh, my God, this is, this is what I've been looking for. This is how I need to think. And, I, and it was honestly an epiphany. I was, I was just sat there completely dumbstruck, and I thought, which is hard for me. And I, I just, at that point on, I realized, and it was simple things he would say. And then I used to hound the poor man. Um, I mean, you know, I spent some time, it, it, sadly, he died in 02, only in his early 70s, and he'd been a polio victim as a young man. So he wasn't physical, he couldn't get up and be physical, but his visual acuity, his ability to look and see, you know, it, it was in a league, possibly, dare I say, within its specialty, even better than the great Dan Path. And there's nobody got an eye like that man. But it was in that, it was in that, stratosphere you know he could look at something and he would just see what's going on and you go how the hell do you do that mm. and i remember him saying to me and i teach it now and i've got my own method of working within it but and it's i know we're going to get philosophy just yet but what he made me realize he asked me some very simple questions that anybody should be able to answer them but i couldn't answer them you know the question was for instance he said so what happens when a body does this when it walks along when it jumps, when it runs. And like I said, well, of course, you know, you've got this phase. No, no, no. What happens? I have no idea. He said, so if you don't know what's, ha- what's supposed to happen, how do you know when it's not happening? <laughs> All you're going to manage to treat are symptoms. And if you're led by symptoms, you're putting Band-Aids on. Mm. So it made me realize that if I don't know what's supposed to happen, I can't know what should happen. But when I finally understand what's supposed to happen, I can see what's happening. And I go, okay, I've got to get from there to there. Now I have context. Now I can go, okay, so that's what should happen. That's what's happening. How do I bridge that gap? And what you find yourself doing is creating and designing methods to treat and mobilize and move to, to get there because we're all different. Mm-hmm. So, but I, but it based upon understanding what should happen mm. and that's the whole body and how it all comes together. And that's been my journey ever since that point mm. in the m- middle eight nineties when I first met him. Mm. And, and that is the cornerstone of the way I now think and teach my guys is, 
And they all said the same thing because I said, so if you're not understanding what should happen, you're only led by symptoms. And if you're led by symptoms in a world of insidious onset, when it's not clear, you'll not get anywhere. Because I wasn't getting anywhere. And I was just as smart as the other guys. Beautiful. And that, that was the epiphany. That was it for me. And I went, oh, my God. And then I think, well, that's really straightforward. Uh, no. <laughs> Not quite as straightforward. <laughs> and that's where you'll see the likes of Stu and myself and Dan Paff when we start talking in those videos and Jerry Ramajido tell, talking about bandwidths, trying to understand what should be normal then, inverted commas, for that person. Because it's one thing to know what should happen, but then you've got to try and work out, okay, what should happen to for that person? And that's where their history, understanding them as a person, their relationship, allows you to start to build this model of what they what is their normal. Because you can't work to a normal because we're all different. Mm -hmm. So then that's the next phase. And that's now now I've done that and I've met some amazing people um, who have informed me, instructed me, or I've, I've learned from without realizing I have. And, you know, in America, for instance, you know, <clears throat> and Canada. So if I go to America, there's people like um, Richard Dontini, bloody amazing man. Um, uh, people like Serge Grakovetsky, the spinal engine, you know, completely different thinker, but wow, what an interesting guy. I mean, there's so, so many names I could hit at you. Mm -hmm. Matt Jordan and I, when I came to Canada in 06, and I went to, came and spent time with Matt and I became, you know, at the very early days of Matt's PhD, we were spiffballing about things and he just got the force plates in and we were at the university and we were messing with these things and we were just throwing stuff around. And it's so cool because, because you've got that ability to think outside the box, you've taken the rules out of the system, you know? And there's only one rule at the end of the day, be safe and discharge your duty of care. As long as you're safe, get over yourself. You've got to think outside the box. People don't follow nice little centered boxes and things, sadly. <laughs> so I don't, you know, that, that was it for me. And then from that point, I've just been trying every single day to improve on that and learn more and bring more things in and when i'm teaching my guys in my team and i'm teaching on courses i'm sucking information to say okay i could modify that that's interesting everybody's got something to offer everybody's got something to offer for you to learn from you just got to i know i talk a lot but you've got to learn to listen to them so i've become much better at listening mm -hmm. to things than i ever was what's what was have has been a bigger challenge for you um in the in the roles that you've had and we'll kind of meander through working with canada speed skating and uk athletics and things in terms of when you've bumped into professionals who are more box oriented um more you know are are sort of because I, you know, in my experience over the years, and I, and I, you know, already listening to you, I can tell that you and I would enjoy a beer together because we have yeah. you know similar thought process. But you are going to run into people who tend to stay in the silo a little bit more and tend to be a little bit more structured in their belief systems. And how how have you brokered that when you've had when you've had to bring people together to work in in teams or as a sort of directed oh. a group that are trying to to push the engine in the right direction super challenging scotty really challenging um and i had my challenges in canada particularly when i came out um 
and it was it was difficult because I am. I, I mean, when I first came to Canada, I thought well, we speak English, <laughs> but the cultures, <laughs> but the cultures are very very different. And um, and it took me a while to understand that I'm in Canada. It's a different culture, and, and think I got to be careful what I say because because Canadians aren't confrontationist at all, um, really, unless you're hockey players. Um, and so. I, I had to learn that my language, which was normal to me, might be offensive to them. As a lot of learning went on, and, and I learned a lot uh, on that side. But um, yeah, I had some difficulties with some people. The difficulty, the big difficulty I had, that's across the board, with those two particular big jobs. So the calendar job and the track and field job were big jobs. I was headhunted into them. Um, I didn't apply for them, um, and so there were challenges and. Um, and I don't work like anybody else. So first of all, people are really not understanding where I fit in. Who is this guy? Is he a Cairo? Is he an osteo? Is he a physio? What is he? He does everything. And I haven't seen that. And, and my way I talk about things and my philosophy and the way I express them is not within their paradigms. And mm-hmm. the one thing about Canada is <laughs> the medical side is pretty anal. It's pretty anal about how it sees things they're very good by the way but they're anal outside the box thinking is not many of them do it in the medical side i noticed so i had to try to step carefully around that plus then people getting very jealous that i had skills they weren't used to seeing Mm. and it took away their position a bit so i had there was a lot of interesting management things going on through different characters in my life fortunately i was what 50 odd just about 50. So I'd got a bit of experience of life, my military training, my commissioning training, my management training through that helped me quite a lot. And I, I had to basically keep my focus. What is it I'm here to achieve? And when I sat them all down at the beginning, I said, look, this is not about you liking me. It's not about you being my friend. I'm running the team and I have an objective. And that objective should be your objective too, is to get these athletes healthy to the line so they can compete for their country that is our single important role and there'll be different ways of getting there but we've got to get there now the minute you allow your own personal thought process and your personal grievances and issues to get in the way of that i will step in Hmm. i'm quite happy that you are your individual i'm not trying to make you do things that i do i'm happy to help and support and give you the tools you need and give you the support you need Provided we're moving in that direction and we're following the timelines. The minute we're not, then it will not be a conversation that's both ways. It will be a one-way conversation. They found that real difficult Mm. in both the UK and in Canada. But when you're in a performance-based scenario, somebody's got to take responsibility at the end of the day. And that was my job. I was in charge. Mm. So I was responsible. And I take my responsibility is seriously. Don't get me wrong. I hate not being liked. I hate it. But I have to put that aside mm-hmm. and I have to do the job. And I was, I was fair. But in the end, I had to, in a few cases, say, look, you either get on board or you go or you get out. You know, get on board or go. Because mm-hmm. I haven't got any more energy or time to waste. These athletes are not getting the best of both of us right now because we're spending too much energy on stuff that really isn't important. Mm. And I've tried and I've tried and I've tried, but it appears that we're not, you, you know, you, you don't want to come on to this, this path with me. Mm. And that's your prerogative, but I therefore can't have you in the team anymore then because mm. it's destructive. Um, 
and sometimes you have to be that way. And I had, no, and I was fully backed. Um, I, I remember one meeting in Canada, um, in Kananaskis, where there was a few people very upset with me. And I, I remember going to being called to a meeting of the great and the good. And I remember saying to them, I will make this really easy for you. If you do not support me, give me a ticket and I'll go straight home right now. I'm happy to discuss ways we can do it, but this is a, this, and they say, no, 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 no. That's exactly right, Gordon. Because by this time I was a bit raw. You know, I had been, been spending hours. I don't think I slept. I was out there on my own because I left my family in the UK. There's no point dragging them over mm. and putting them in the middle of nowhere. They didn't know anybody. And so I was literally working around the clock to make this work, bearing in mind that I didn't know anything about Speedscape when I got there. <laughs> so I'm on a massive learning curve here. Um, and I wasn't always right, Scott. I think it's important that I say that. It doesn't mean that I was right about everything, but I was responsible Mm. so hey even if i got it wrong i'm still the one carrying the can it's my ass on this in a sling mm. and i think you hopefully you would agree that when ultimately you are accountable then ultimately you've got to make the final decision mm-hmm. that's what, how i saw it what is something that you maybe there's a commonality or non-commonality in those situations over the years where people won't let go of their bite on the stick, so to speak, when they need to, and what is it usually connected to? Is it something that their ego is attached to, in the sense yeah. that they've, they've put, put time into or yeah. experience ego. into, or whatever? Yeah. yeah, mostly their ego. Mostly their ego, and we've all got one. And the more driven we are, perhaps the bigger it is. But one thing we learn, as I'm sure you've done the same, you learn to put it in the box. It cannot go bouncing around the room, and it certainly can't be bouncing around athletes. Mm. Um, and I think that was it. I think it's ego. I think it's somebody coming in from the outside, which is the first time Canada had ever done it. There's a different problems in the UK athletes, which I'll talk about with you. But And so it was difficult. And I'm not suggesting that I didn't go in. I tried to go in softly, softly. But you've got to remember, I was brought in along with a lot of other people because Canada had two home games and no gold medals. There was a massive pressure on Canada. That's why they went outside to look for people. Yeah. And, I, and I had to sometimes remind these people in the team, say, guys, you may not like it. You don't have to like it, but you've got to work with it. Because so far, you guys have failed to win the medals that you should be winning. I mean, you're one of the greatest winter nations in the world. You know, for, to not win gold medals is mad. Mm. And so... And so that was really it. And, and, and don't get me wrong. When I was wrong, I put my hand up and said I was wrong. I got that wrong and I'll put it right. And, and that happened a few times. Um, and I think that finally we, we achieved the aim. I mean, mm. you know, the speed skate in Canada won 11, won 11 medals. Um, we won a lot of medals. What um, was the most uh, sad, like after, you know, you, you, you obviously there's a, massive input for something like that on your your behalf and commitment and you know all the things that go along with that with your family not being there so you know you get to the olympics what was the most sort of gratifying moment of the olympic games for you when you look back at at those games well and this is this is truthful i got my family to the games Mm. but speed skating canada uh we got my family out to the games we got them to the canada house we got them tickets for some of the things that to have my family with me at the games in canada was amazing 
mm. to be able to see them, to be able to meet up with them, for them to be able to look at things, to be able to take them around, introduce them to athletes and whatever. That was amazing. And also the performances. I mean, you know, they're amazing athletes. I mean, I've got such respect for speed skating. Mm. I mean, it is an amazing sport. And I say to people, you may not look it on the TV, but unless you're going to get up close on a rink and, uh, or in an oval and you watch these are amazingly skilled and talented athletes, and they work hard. And I and I love that. And we, you know, we won some great medals, and and uh, yeah, I mean that was awesome. But having my family in in the games was the games was amazing. And I'll give you one very quick story. At the very end of the games, the night after the games closed, the whole of the Team Canada uh, sport units were, were invited by the COC downtown Vancouver for dinner, and. And I remember, great, and I remember about one in the morning coming back on the Canada line to get off at um, Richmond. And I get off and I hear these people singing down at the very bottom of the escalators. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I know those voices. I'm sure I do. And I get on the escalator and I see RMPs standing there about these five or six people doing hoops upside your head, singing. And it was my bloody family and friends <laughs> in the station, one o'clock in the morning. I'm like, oh, my God. And these police officers loving it. They were loving it. And I'm thinking we're going to get arrested, but they were great. And that was a, an endearing moment, you know, coming back from that, that dinner and, uh, and seeing my family there was just amazing. So that made it a very special sort of end to Canada because I pretty much came home pretty much um, straight after that. Wow. So then you're in UK athletics and I'm interested when you have the re reverse paradigm because you're uh, an English bloke in Canada and now you're an English bloke back in the UK, but you got a bunch of imports on your performance team, which I know talking yeah. to the other guys ha had its challenges. So uh, how was the, the process of, and then you guys, obviously UK had an amazing athletics Olympics. Yep. So, you know, so almost a parallel situation where you have a lot of strife difficulty and, and then you get to the end and you have the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But uh, yeah, tell, sure. tell me a little bit about that challenge. Well, that was a huge challenge because I was headhunted into that role too. And I, and I certainly know for a fact that Stuart and Dan had a little bit to do with that. Um, in supporting my name going forward, even though um, Charles Duncomany, the boss, didn't really know who I was, but he got to know me and decided I was the man he wanted. Sorry, he got he he, he obviously did some research on me. I meant he didn't. I didn't meet him until the first event, but and he wanted me. I, I was <clears throat> I I turned it down twice hmm. because because it's a massive role. If you'd have said to me, would you have applied to be the chief physio for track and field at London 2012? I'd have said no. I didn't have the track. I have the skills, but I didn't have the track background. So I didn't know the disciplines. And there's a lot of rehab in, in track, particularly in track. And I didn't know it. So I, I was thinking I'm going in, but eventually they persuaded me to do it. And that I felt like every single day I was climbing the Eiger. I have to tell you, <laughs> I did. Um, and so, but, so I, I inherit these guys. Fortunately, you know, look, Stu and I go back, so that was no problem. Dan Paff is a legend. I mean, you know, working with him. Derek Evely, um, and I got him like a house on fire. He was the main man at the centre in Loughborough. Um, and I met Jerry Ramajida, and we just hit it off great. Jerry is a great guy. Um, 
has issues with focus, but skills <laughs> and as a person, what a great what a great therapist that guy is. And so I was working with some great guys, and and we got on really well. And of course, there was Neil Black at the time, who was who was um, the head of medicine and science, uh, who was a long-standing friend of mine, and um, and it was great. But Charles made it very clear what my role was. It was to be at every event. And it was to get the medical team pointing in the right direction because it wasn't. So there was my challenge. My challenge was not only did I have to learn very rapidly um, about the disciplines and understand them better. I had no problem treating the athletes, but then rehabbing them and advising the coaches is very difficult when you don't know the disciplines. So I was on another massive steep, that's the Iger learning curve, mm. uh, and spent hours with coaches, hours and hours and hours in the evenings with coaches, didn't go home. Um, I couldn't. I had too much to learn too quickly. And I was, don't forget, I'm headhunted in now, and there's a lot of noses out of joint. A lot of people would have wanted the job. Mm. So you can just imagine the knives that were out were like massive. But again, you take your responsibility, you've got to accept what comes with it. So, so there was a lot to do. But there was some real talent, though. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, the, the team was full of talent, and it wasn't my job to. It was my job to try and hone that talent and try and find a way to bring them together, not, not destroy them. I mean, it's easy to, to be bark at people. So I had to try to find a way to bring them together and how to work it through. And, and I tried many, many different strategies and whatever. And eventually, I needed a bit of stick and carrot. So eventually, they realized that if they wanted to go to the games as part of the team, they couldn't get there unless I said so. Now, they'd already been told originally they were going. And I had to get Charles to reverse that decision because, as I said, otherwise I've got no chance of doing the job you want. You may as well forget it. I need it. They need to know they've got to do at least to listen to me uh, to a degree because I'm going to rubber stamp their, their slot. And he did that. He was a great guy to work for, Van Comedy, I have to say. Straight as a die, very clear what he wanted, very clear about what your role was. Uh, and I like that that resonated with me military wise because that's what I'm used to. Give me a give me a give me a target, give me a set of parameters, bang, I've got it. And he did that, and I can honestly say I achieved that, not without some pain, but we achieved it. And and I was fortunate that I had I could speak with the guys. I got to know Derek real well. I got to know Dan even better. I knew Stu anyway, and then other people who were around who were very good at the time in there. Lots of other names. Um, and they were they were really cool. And and I built a lot of bridges. And I and I I'm most proud of this this particular fact. Um, <clears throat> when I took over, we had a high percentage of injured athletes, um, a high percentage in both main centres in London and uh, and in Loughborough. And before the games, that percentage was incredibly low. I brought it down massively. I didn't bring it down through amazing treatment, although I'd like to think a bit of the clinical stuff made, made, made sense. The reason we brought it down was because I altered the culture within the medical team and how it communicated with the coaching staffs. Because mm. when I took over, they talked, the medical teams talked down to the coaching teams. Now, in Britain, you probably heard this. We have a very, we don't put coaches in a very high esteem, sadly. Canada, geez, Canada and America, I mean, coaches are flipping up there and the rest of us are here. But not in, not in the UK, sadly, unless it's in professional football mm. and rugby, right? So my role was to, um, 
to change that paradigm. And funny old thing, once I, once I, and I was very strict with them about this, once we got better communication lines with the coaches and the coaches began to realize it was a conversation, not a directive, injury rates came down because we were, we were right about some of the things we wanted to change and alter and adjust. But the way it was being put across, the coaches were just like, talk to the hand. <laughs> so by changing that, shifting that paradigm and shifting that communication, and we started to communicate, our injury rate started to drop. And that has got healthier. So it was communication and teamwork, not some wonderful magical bit of treatment or clinical skills that, that started to make the difference. Mm-hmm. And, and that, was my, that was what I realized was the way I had to get this to work. So try not to beat up the therapist because they weren't doing things the way I might do them, but to say, right, this is how I need you to communicate. This is how you will communicate. This is non-negotiable. This is a communication which requires you to talk with, not at. Mm. And that was the thing I'm most proud of, and that's how I managed to get things moving in the right direction. Now, hey, come the, come the end of the whole setup, I mean, yes, there were – people who who hadn't liked my style or the way I did things. The biggest problem was they didn't get me because the way I did things was so different. They didn't get it. And when you don't get something, you tend to fight against it. Mm. And because I didn't work like they were used to, and I didn't follow the protocols that they were used to, the, but the athletes loved what I did, they fought me quite a lot on it. And, and that was sad but now people have come full circle because i look after more athletes and you can shake a stick at and everybody wants to understand what it is i do that i was doing 10 years ago when i was there mm. so I've, I've had that that's been hard for me to try to feel like a bit of an outcast to feel like i'm some like i'm some sort of charlatan or pariah who doesn't know what day it is mm. and i found that incredibly hard to deal with mm. but realized if it doesn't sound a, a bit arrogant but it's probably i was probably ahead of my time at that stage i can only think i can only think that must have been it that's a little bit you know arrogant maybe but i i don't mean it to wish to come across that way but i can't i mean you know i'm not doing anything different now than i did then but it's okay now it's funny because you talked about your one of your big influences being yonda and, and you know when you're when when you're part of this sort of front of a wave sort of culture and you're looking at things you're obviously been more call it holistically um connected to the way you operate and practice for many years now which is only now probably in the last five to eight years becoming more uh, vogue in the industry prior to that it was very silo oriented very you know um Look, let's look at the joint. Let's uh, let's deal with the pain. Let's you know, and the idea of looking elsewhere or looking at the big picture, or looking at how people move or understand—that was not you know the culture of performance in any of the silos. It was more like let's make them stronger, let's make them faster, let's let's fix that shoulder, let's fix that knee, etc. So it's it's cool, it, you know, those of us who who were in that sort of belief system for a longer period of time have recognized that it's been a harder harder slog, but now you know people are recognizing the value proposition of it now, so yeah. oh hundred percent, and I have to say, I mean i the track and field gets under your skin, and it's certainly got under my skin and i and I love it and i and and it was a great education for me because you know i you know i it, it is one of those things, and and it 
It's true. If you can survive in track and field and do a good job, you can do a good job in anything. It is incredibly exacting, incredibly um, precise. And, um, and it's made me a better therapist. But absolutely no doubt in my mind that I am a better therapist for that, for being with involved with track and field. There's no doubt. And, and I've worked with some great people and I've learned, and I'm still learning. So I'll always be thankful for that and thankful that I took it. And, and, and I, and I want to say one thing about karma. It's interesting, isn't it? I couldn't work out why I should go to Canada. Why did I go to Canada? Because the money was not good. Um, a lot of things weren't good. But you know what? I just, I had this feeling that I need to go and do that job. And there's not a chance I am convinced that I'd have been offered the track and field job of the top job. That's the best job in the country, as far as I'm concerned. Had I not gone to Canada mm. and done the job there, I would not have been offered this job. I'm absolutely convinced of it. So that was the, now I know afterwards, I'm sure that's the reason I knew I had to go to Canada. Mm. Cool. You know? Well, we've been chatting for almost an hour and a half now. I don't want to take you for too long, but uh, how, to finish to finish this, um, you know, now you're in your sixties. You're kind of like, okay, what what's next for you? What do you what do you what do you want your career to be in your next twenty years of practice or your next ex you know ex iteration of uh, of Gordon? I want to teach more. I want to mentor. I want to write a book which I've started, not very good at it. Um, and I want to basically leave that legacy behind. I want to be able to impart what I've now learned and I know to enhance what people already know and can do. So, you know, that's why I'm, I mentor out in uh, with jazz out and the medical teams out in Altis and other places in clubs more and more. I'm being asked to come in and to teach and to pass on some thoughts of wisdom. And then that is what I want to do because my hands my hands have only got so much left in them now. You know, I, I, I'm, my wrists are beginning to struggle. I, I realize that I'm on a, a shrinking time clock for actually physically being able to treat. So I really would love to teach more. I'd love to, um, as I say, I'd love to mentor more. I'd love to try and bring people on. And, and the lockdown's getting in the way of that right now. Uh, and I would, have been in the, I would have been out at Altis uh, this year earlier on had that happened. And, and, I want to do that. I want to explore my, the friendships I've made in America and, in, and see my friends in Canada. I, I haven't had a chance to really do that. Um, great people who inspire me and, and according to them, I inspire them a little bit. And I want to do that. I want to be inspired. I want to be inspiring um, and just keep going until basically I run out of gas and some, somebody says, that's it. Boy, that's you. Um, definitely don't see myself retiring, that's for sure. That's cool. Last question. What would you, if you ran into the fella who had just lost his business and was in that dark place today, what would you say to him? I would say, um, gather the people who care about you around you, uh, for support and strength and don't give up. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. You just have to you just have to keep gradually just doing what Alpacino says, grab the inches, grab the inches, just crawl your way through. There is a light, but you need help. I, if you're on your own, I'm, if I, I hate to think where I might have gone, I'd have not had my wife. Mm. So I would say that person, don't give up, but people need to gather the people around you. They, they need to 
to, su to support you. Not, not try and solve your problems. That's one thing I learned. Don't try and solve the problems for them. Mm. Just support them and be there for them. But they have to solve their own problems. I had to get myself out of the hole I was in. No one else could do that. I just needed that support. And, and I would say that to myself if I saw myself. Don't give up. Keep moving forward slowly. It's going to be a tough ride. It's going to be difficult, but, but you can do it. Awesome. Awesome way to finish, sir. Thank you for taking an hour and a half with me. Hey, I've loved it. I hope I don't know. I've not said anything I shouldn't say, have I? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I haven't upset any. I'm going to get trolled. <laughs> I don't think so. I think you've been uh, very forthcoming and honest about your your journey, and I think that's the whole point of the podcast for sure. So, well, listening to the previous, that's how I felt it went. It's 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 about just being honest about who you are and, and where you've been. And you're a great host, by the way. Oh, thank you. I have to say, you're clearly listening uh, very intently and, and and directing things. That was really cool. And thanks for letting me speak so much, which is not it's not difficult for me. But um, <laughs> well, I've never spoken about my life before like that. That's awesome. It'll be a nice uh, journal for you to maybe even give to your kids. There you go. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for taking the time. Pleasure, my friend. Take care. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Payne, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>